Please take out your copy of God's Word and turn to John chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 35 through 47 this morning. John chapter 6, verses 35 through 47, page 892 in the Pew Bible. We have finally turned the page. We're about on a page every six weeks pace, so we should probably slow down a little bit. Um, but I'm kidding, we won't slow down. But We have before us a wonderful text and another timely text. Members, remember, we have a members meeting next Sunday following the service. Be there. We have some important matters to discuss together as a, as a church family. And this text actually wonderfully helps us to begin to prepare for that. Uh, one of the questions that has come up as we've talked through the 1689 and proposed the change to the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith has been the idea, you know, does this really matter all that much, right? Shouldn't we all just love one another? Shouldn't it be no creed but the Bible? Shouldn't we just love Jesus and leave it alone? It's a good, legitimate question. Right? Does doctrine and specificity, does this really matter all that much? Because that's ultimately why we're proposing the change. Because we believe that theology and right doctrine is really good and really important. And so the question is, well, is it? Are we mistaken or are we correct? Well, let's see what Jesus says in this text. Let's see here if Jesus is general and vague or specific and clear. Let's see if doctrine matters to Christ. And if it does, let's see what that doctrine is. But first, let's start with John. Let's start with the author of this book that we're devoting so much time to. John is often known as the Apostle of Love, and he very much is that. But he is just as much the Apostle of Doctrine. This is the teaching gospel. This is the theology gospel. We generally, generally think Paul, you know, Apostle of Doctrine, uh, but Paul was just as much about love as John was. Go read 1 Corinthians. Um, and John was just as much about doctrine as Paul was. One of my favorite stories from early church history is about John. Irenaeus was a famous uh, second century Greek pastor who ended up ministering most of his life in present day France. He claimed that he was a student of Polycarp, who claimed that he was a student of John himself. So in the second century, Irenaeus was known as sort of like the last living link to the apostles. And in Irenaeus' most famous work, uh, Against Heresies, he tells this story of John running into one of the most famous heretics at the end of the first century, a man named Serenthus. Serenthus was an Egyptian Gnostic. That means lots of things, but basically, kind of the core of Serenthus' teaching was that Jesus was just a man who had been indwelt by the Spirit of Christ for a time, and then before the crucifixion, the Spirit of Christ uh, left the man, Jesus. So in other words, he taught that Jesus was not God. Serenthus challenged the person of Christ. He got his doctrine of the person of Christ wrong. And so the story, as Irenaeus records it, goes at somewhere around 90 or so. Um, one day in Ephesus, where John ministered, John entered into one of the Roman bathhouses. We should be very thankful for private, private baths these days. right? Roman public bathhouses was the norm back then. And so as he enters into the Roman bathhouse, he sees Serenthus there across from him. And the story goes that John then immediately sprinted out of the building, shouting to those with him, let us fly, lest even this bathhouse fall down, because Serenthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. That's the story. That's, that's John. That's the author of our book. The apostle of love. Very much also the apostle of doctrine. He wouldn't even share a bath 
with the man who denied the Lord that he so loved. And we can't know this for certain, but some have argued that John writes in part to combat the false teaching of Serenthus and others that were starting to kind of crop up towards the end of the first century. And so John combats false teaching about Christ by clearly laying out for us true teaching about Christ from Christ himself. And that's what we have before us in our text today. And whereas the, the heart of Serenthus's error concerned the person of Christ, that error also then resulted in error when it came to the work of Christ. Get the person wrong, get the work wrong. Because Serenthus got Christ wrong, he got grace wrong, and because he got grace wrong, he didn't get grace. Since Christ is grace and Christ is life, in getting grace wrong, Serenthus got death. Listen, there is nothing more important for you to know and get correct than the grace of God. And it is to that, to the work of Christ, that we turn now. In verse 35, Jesus has said, I am the bread of life. All that supernatural feeding with physical bread that I just did, that was meant to point you to the fact that I am the spiritual bread. Just like you need physical bread to to live, you need me to spiritually live. And yet, verse 36, Jesus is going to say to the crowd, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And so the question is, why not? The Christ who is life stands before them. They have seen his supernatural works with their very eyes. They have seen the one full of grace and truth, the one who is compassionate and kind, their maker, their everything is before them. And yet they do not believe. Some of you have heard again and again and again of this Christ. And yet you do not believe. Why not? This is the question. If Christ is as good and glorious as we have been presenting him, as John has been presenting him, so manifestly beautiful and desirous, why do so few people believe? That's actually the question that Jesus tackles in these verses. This is sort of a pause. This is sort of an aside. Jesus is going to go back to the teaching of himself as the bread of life in verse 48. Jesus says the same thing in verse 35 and verse 48. But here in the middle... He confronts and explains the persistent unbelief that Jesus faces then and now. They do not believe. He's right in front of them. They don't believe in him. Has Jesus failed? By no means, as Paul would say. Why not? Because the Son is perfectly, perfectly executing the will of the Father. Why not? Because of the glorious doctrines of grace. They're all over this text. This is grace. This is the doctrine of grace. This is the gracious work of Christ. This is why unbelief and then also why belief. Our question is generally, why do so few believe when our question should be, why does anyone believe? And we're going to see here in this text that it is only because of the grace of God. And church, I love the grace of of God. I think for, for many of us, I know for me for a long time, we give that grace lip service. But by the grace of God, I am coming to see the wonderful gift that is the grace of God and how I am desperately dependent upon it for everything. And so that's the one thing that I want you to know. Do you know and rest and rejoice in God's grace? Do you love God's grace, the doctrines of grace? 
Well, let's look at that grace together for the next few minutes. Uh, It's revealed in Christ, and it is compellingly revealed here by Christ. Five points for you this morning. No, not those five points. Not exactly, but but pretty much. We're going to walk through my five points. The first four of them are from the text. The fifth is our logical response, if the first four hold. And so the question you need to consider this morning, are these first four points from the text? It is your responsibility, Bereans, to follow along with the scriptures and check what I am saying with what Christ is saying. Is what I am saying in correspondence with what Christ is saying. Doesn't matter what I think. Doesn't matter what you think. What does Christ think? So let's consider his words about his grace here this morning. Point number one, we're going to start with man's problem. You will have to forgive me for this one. This is a prime example of a pastor being too obsessed with alliteration. At this point, I simply alliterate because it annoys you. And I find that humorous. Uh, What's our problem? Our problem is innervating unbelief. I like that word. I will define it for you in a moment. Uh, But our focus is going to be on points two through four. Our problem, God's solution. Grace. And so let's describe that grace. From Christ's words, I'm going to make the case that we will see that this grace is an affecting grace, an electing grace, and an ensuring grace. And if that's what grace is, if that is what God has done for us, then point number five necessarily follows. Christian, believe, be humble, and be glad. Listen, I honestly believe that many of our struggles, many of my struggles, are rooted in the fact that we don't really understand and live in light of God's absolute and absolutely glorious grace. So let's look at that grace this morning. This is the most important part of the sermon. Is this in the text? Let's listen to Christ himself. John chapter 6. I'm going to read starting in verse 35 and we'll go through verse 47. But pay attention. Because this is what God wants to say to you today. Jesus said to them, to the crowd, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. If you would bow with me, let's go first to the God of all grace in prayer and ask him for his help. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. So Father, we ask now that you would help us. I ask that you would help me uh, sustain me physically, but most importantly, Father, I pray spiritually that you would help the preaching of your word. 
I pray that your spirit would do your work according to your word. Father, I am helpless to accomplish anything of eternal and lasting value. But Father, you are more than capable of accomplishing what you want and will. Father, you always accomplish what you want and will. So we ask uh, that you would work through your word. We ask that you would encourage and comfort your people. Father, we ask that you would save sinners uh, through the preaching of your word. And do all of that by showing us Christ and by showing us his wonderful grace that is our only hope. Father, I pray that I would be clear. I pray that your word would be front and center. I pray that you would get all the glory. Help us to listen, Lord, and help us to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to do my best not to sniffle through this whole thing. You have to forgive me. Don't panic. I have a sinus infection. It is not catching. Um, The only risk is if it just bursts out of this line right here where it feels like it's trying to escape my head. So just pray for my, I had this crazy sinus headache, but excuse my voice um, and the sniffles. Nicole's already laughing at the sniffles, so got to put that out there. We start with our problem, big problem, much worse than sinus infections, the universal problem. Point number one, innervating unbelief. Again, my apologies for the obnoxious word. I was clearly hunting for an E word here, but once I found this one, I just could not resist this wonderful word. Its root is, of course, Latin, and it's the prefix for out of, attached to the word for sinew, which in many ancient languages just meant strength, right? So when you cut the sinews, you cut strength. So the word means to weaken, or more literally, to remove or take out strength or ability. And so I'm just using this fancy E word to mean inability. What is our problem today? Total inability, disabling unbelief. Where am I seeing that in the text? Well, let's look at it. We looked at verse 35 last week. We're using that as our lead-in to the text this week. I am the bread of life. Jesus will say it again next week in verse 48. This is the big idea of the longest chapter of the Bible. I am the bread of life. Longest chapter of the New Testament. Bread is the bookends of this text. In feeding with physical bread, Jesus is revealing himself as the spiritual bread, as life. And then he gives this gracious invitation in verse 35. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What an offer. Never hungering, never thirsting, spiritual, eternal satisfaction. Surely no one would refuse such an offer. Verse 36. But I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So believe in me and live. As we see in verse 40, see me and live. You have seen me and not believed. That is unbelief. And that is the universal human condition. I peek down at verse 44. This is the key verse. We'll focus on it in a moment. But first, focus just on the beginning. Note how strongly and definitively Christ speaks here. No one can come to me unless. That's a universal negative. Jesus has said in 35, come to me. Jesus says in 44, no one can come to me unless. Unless something done, unless some sort of condition is met. But for now, we're focusing on the inability. Jesus says, no one can come to me. Some of you are thinking, "Are are you saying that there are some who could not believe? John 12, 39. Therefore, they could not believe. See, scripture often doesn't have the same problems that we have. Scripture has no problems with the could not and cannot language. In fact, Scripture emphasizes that this is the condition of every single one of us. We cannot come to Christ on our own in our sin. 
And it is so important to start here. If you are willing to see what Scripture says about the seriousness of your sin, if you are willing to grant the seriousness of the sin in your heart, then you will be willing to grant all that follows. Again, if this first point is established, everything else necessarily follows. There is no argument. If what Scripture says about sin is true, then what Scripture says about grace must be true. There can be no other way. In other words, if you can see how big the problem is, you'll be able to see how big the solution must be. If you can see how bad the problem is, you'll be able to see how good and gracious the solution is. How bad is the problem? You are a sinner. You know that, right? You have demonstrated that to yourself this week, right? You have demonstrated that to yourself this morning, right? And Jesus will say in John eight thirty four, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And Anthony wonderfully led us through the end of Romans 6 on Thursday night. Verse 20, you were slaves of sin. What did we get from that? Verse 23, death. We were under sin's dominion. We were under its rule and reign. We were its slaves. And again, it's not complicated. Slaves are, by definition, not free. Slaves don't, you know what? I'm done today. You know, I choose to no longer be a slave anymore. I'm I'm going to get out of here. No, They, they cannot do that. And this is the spiritual condition of everyone in their sin. Again, yes, we are free in the sense that we have natural liberty. We are not robots. We are responsible moral agents. Our our choices matter. There is nothing outside of us that forces us or coerces us or constrains us against our will. So we have natural liberty. We are free to do what we desire. A problem? In our sin, as slaves to sin... We only desire sin. Yes, we have natural liberty, but we do not have moral or spiritual liberty. We have no ability to choose ultimate good, to choose God. Jesus is staring them in the face, and yet they do not believe. They cannot believe. Listen, this is how serious sin is. We are so prone to make sin pretty small. You know, I'm not doing the big bad ones. I'm not doing the terrible things. In the South, it's don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. If you do those things, you're a Christian, and you're all right. Um, And we think all these minor, tiny little sins are, you know, these aren't aren't that big of a deal. One sin, no matter what it is, no matter how small, separates us from the God who is life. He is that good, and we need him to be that good. He's that holy, and he's that righteous, and he's that pure, that anything separates us from him who is life and blinds us to him who is light. In Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. See, that's our fallen heart. Paul goes on, no one understands. That's our fallen mind. No one seeks for God. That's our fallen will. And guess what? That's all of us. Heart, mind, will. All of us in our sin. That's our innervating unbelief, our total inability. We cannot. You still don't like that word, cannot? We can consider God's word, Romans 8, 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
This is just the language that Scripture uses. Cannot, not able. Okay, so how bad is it really? Ephesians 2.1 sums it up perfectly. For you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And it's pretty simple. Dead doesn't do. Corpse doesn't choose. This is what God's word says about our spiritual condition. This is why they see and yet do not and cannot believe. And you just consider how serious the condition must be for them to see what they have seen and yet not see. Consider how serious the condition must be for so many of us to hear what we have heard and experience what we have experienced and yet not really hear. If this Christ is as glorious as this word um, claims, then we must have a major problem to not be able to see him and want him. We must be dead. If Christ is spiritual life, and if he is here offering spiritual life, then we must need that spiritual life. And if we need spiritual life, the obvious, obvious implication is that we must be spiritually dead. And listen, if that's true, everything that is to come necessarily follows. If you are dead, then you have no hope in yourself. You have no hope unless someone outside of yourself does something for you. You have no hope apart from grace. And so I encourage you and I invite you to listen and be open, Again, not to me first, but, but to Christ. Hear what Christ says. Christ is unpacking for us sovereign grace here. Yes, he's talking about election, but he's doing so not for the purpose of controversy, but comfort. He's doing so because if our condition is that serious, then this is our only hope. Listen to what James Montgomery Boyce says, his famous pastor, 10th Presbyterian Church in, in Philly at the end of the 20th century. Here's what he says about these verses. If these verses are understood and allowed to penetrate the heart, they will cause the Christian who feeds upon them to be sickly no longer. Instead, that person will grow and become strong. These are verses that carry us deep into the mind and heart of God. They are given to fix our minds upon the grace and sovereignty of God in all things. This can bring you great comfort for your soul. But be ready, be warned, for as Boyce also writes, it is one of the surest facts of Christianity that when the doctrine of man's total spiritual depravity and the necessity for God's electing grace and salvation are preached, there will be resentment by many who hear them. So be ready for that. Be prepared externally. There's always opposition to the doctrines of grace. But also be ready for that internal opposition. Again, I don't want to believe that I'm this bad and that I'm this desperate and dependent upon somebody else's help. So even I, who love to preach the doctrines of grace, even I kind of have this internal resistance. Like, surely, no, I'm not that bad. So seek with me to set aside any preconceptions or resistance that we may have and try to simply look at and listen to Christ. For, for that is the heart and soul of the Christian life, to look to him, to listen to him, and then to submit to what he says and to love him. Yeah, not me, but him. Not what I think, but what he says. So we've seen our problem. Let's get to God's solution. Point number two, effecting grace. And we will focus most of our time here. If God's grace is effecting, then it necessarily must be electing and ensuring. So if I can make this point, again, the next two necessarily follow. And yes, listen, I mean effecting with an E. 
But grammar is a lost art. Part of what I want to do is help you see the beauty of grammar, uh, teach you the goodness of English grammar. Uh, people generally struggle with there, there, and there, and with your, and with your. It's embarrassing. Don't do that. Uh, people often also struggle with the difference between affect with an A and effect with an E. It's actually pretty simple. You generally use affect with an A as a verb and effect with an E as a noun. But here, I am correctly using effect as a verb. As a verb, effect, to effect something, means to accomplish it. It means to cause it to come into being. And that's exactly what God's grace does. It affects that which it intends. Look at verse 37. Verse 37. Verse 35, Jesus has said, come to me, believe in me. Verse 36, Jesus has said, you do not believe in me. Verse 37. But all that the Father gives to me will come to me. We're going to focus on the Father giving part next. But first, I simply want you to see the effectiveness of that giving. All that the Father gives will come. Not may come or might come, but will come. This is a guarantee. This happens. God gives. They come. And Christian, oh, in this world full of insecurity, here is great security. And here is why we must unapologetically preach and emphasize the great grace of God. Here is where you can rest your head. How sure is this? How sure is this grace? Look at verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of God himself. Notice, again, we love to talk about man's will and free will. Christ loves to talk about God's will. And Christ has come for the express purpose of doing God's will. Which is what? Skip verse 39 for a moment. We're going to come back to that. We're going to come back to that in verse 4. It's wonderful. Look at verse 40. Look at 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Everyone who looks and believes will have eternal life. Remember, life is the whole point of this book, that you may believe in Christ and have life in his name. And that's the whole point of this specific part of the book. I am the bread of life. And this verse tells us that it is the will of the Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes will have this life. Yeah, but as we've just seen, they're literally looking at the Son. But the Son himself says in verses 26 and 36 that they do not and have not believed. And what can be done? What must be done? Back to verse 44. We've already looked at it. They haven't come. No one can come unless, oh, wonderful, unless. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So no one can come, universal negative, unless. Here's the exception. Here's the condition. Here's what must happen for anyone to come. The Father must draw them. And so the big question is, what does that word mean? What does that verb, drawl, helkuo, in the Greek, what does it mean? Yeah, I think we probably tend to think of it as some sort of attractive, inviting, or alluring. Right? You, you come into the church 
Sunday morning, you're tired, it's cold. VJ draws you all into the kitchen right, with the alluring smells of, of coffee and cinnamon rolls. Right? Here's this delicious aroma available to all, and you can either resist it or give in to it. You can accept the delicious smelling coffee, or you can be just depraved and terrible as I am and reject the delicious smelling coffee. But it's up to you, right? VJ has done the drawing, right? He has made the delicious smells. It's up to you to come and respond. Is, is, is that what the word drawl means? Well, let's see. Because John likes this word, actually. John will use the same word again in chapter 18, verse 10. If you want to look there, John 18, verse 10. The mob has come for Christ in chapter 18, verse 10. We read there in verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, same word, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. I, I think that verse is, oh, I guess it's not hilarious. I was going to say hilarious. I think it's kind of funny. What's Peter doing there? It's unlikely that Peter is this master swordsman and he like perfectly executes this ear removing blow. Like, I got it. I got his ear. No, what's he doing? He's trying to kill the guy. Peter's trying to take his head off, but he misses and he just gets the ear, right? It's, it's classic Peter. Uh, I love Peter because if there's hope for Peter, there is hope for me. Yeah, but that's not the point. The verb in the Greek, it literally says Peter helkuoed his sword. He drew it. Is the mob coming? And Peter's like, all right, sword, come on. I need your sword. Get up here. Come on, get out of the sheet. No, Peter grabs the sword and he drug it out. Peter drew his sword. We see the same word in chapter 21, in verse 6 and 11. Peter again goes aboard and he hauled or he drew, he helkuoed the net ashore full of large fish. Again, it's Peter sitting up on the beach calling to the net and the fish, like, you know, come on, guys, come on, I need you, I need you up here. No, he's, he's grabbed them, and he has dragged them to himself. And John really likes this word. Peter does, or, no, sorry, Paul. Paul does not like this word. Because twice in the book of Acts, in Acts 16, 19, and in Acts 21, 30, we read, Paul and Silas are seized and dragged into the marketplace. Same word. Again, in chapter 21, a crowd seizes Paul and drags him out of the temple. These are all the same word that we have here in John chapter 6. And Paul was not drawn. The crowd's like, hey, you know, we would like to stone you and beat you. Could you, uh, could you come this way here, Paul? Um, no, they go and get Paul. They seize him and they grab him and they drag him to them. That's the word that Jesus uses here. No one can come unless the Father draws him. Listen, when the Father, when the sovereign God of all power draws, when he wills, it is an affecting, effective willing and drawing. He does not fail. And read verses 44 and verses 37 together, and this will be clear. No one can come to Christ unless the Father draws them. All that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. This is an affecting and effective call. This is grace. And so here's the question. And how does God do this drawing? And we just read around a sword being drawn, a net being dragged, Paul being dragged. You know, is that exactly what God does? Does he, does he force us? Does he grab us and drag us to him, kicking and screaming against 
our will. Yeah, actually, that's what C.S. Lewis says about his own conversion, right? He was the most reluctant convert in the whole of England, dragged kicking and screaming uh, to the Lord. But is that how God generally does it? Jesus tells us. Keep reading. Look at verses 45 and 46. Here's how he draws. These verses, what were these verses here for? Jesus is explaining. He says, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. What, what does that mean? And where in the prophets is it written that they will all be taught by God? Well, it seems most likely that Jesus is referencing there Isaiah 53, 14. Uh, John uses Isaiah more than any other uh, Old Testament book. Isaiah 54, 13 falls right between the glorious revelation of the suffering servant in chapter 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's grace. And then the glorious chapter 55 that we read last week. The invitation. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come, buy, eat, without money, without price. Come to the compassionate Lord. That's grace. And in the middle of all of that, the promise of peace. Uh, God promises a covenant where all your children will be taught by the Lord. Yeah, which I think must also then be a reference to Jeremiah 31. This is why we just read Jeremiah 31 in the scripture reading. Now, that's the, the promise of the new covenant, which we've been studying and seeing, is the covenant of grace. God says, I'm going to create a covenant with you, not like the one I created with your forehead. Not like the one that they broke, because this one cannot be broken. Because this one is grace. Because this one is about what I am going to do for you. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. I think that's what Jesus is referencing. That's what it means to be taught by God. To be taught by God is to, to know him intimately and savingly. And what we see here is that this saving knowledge is all of grace. It is all something that God does in our hearts. The promise of the new covenant is that he's going to give us new hearts. Why is that the promise of the new covenant? Because we're dead. Our only hope is life. A dead heart needs a new heart. And so the promise of the new covenant is here is that new heart graciously given to you. Here's what I'm going to do for you. New hearts. This is what God does. And it says he writes his good and gracious law on our hearts. So in verses 45 and 46 of John 6, Jesus is explaining how verse 44 happens. This is how God draws to himself. This drawing that is an affecting, effective work of the Spirit. God graciously changes our hearts as he gives us new hearts. Jesus has said in John 3, you must be born again. We've seen that's not something that you do. That's something that the Spirit does. Remember, Ephesians 2.1, we're dead. Verse 5, but God made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And that's what it means to be taught of God and to hear and learn from the Father. The Holy Spirit gives us new life, new eyes to see the beauty and the glory of God so that we are now able and willing to come freely to Christ. We were dead. Dead people can't do anything. We were slaves. Slaves can't be free. God gives us new life and sets us free so that we can then respond 
uh, to him and follow him and repent and believe. It's God who must do it. It is grace that is our only hope. And listen, this, this right here, this is how he does it. The Spirit works through the Word. Look, if I didn't believe in the sovereign grace of God, if you somehow after this conversation, after this sermon convinced me that I was wrong about God's sovereign grace, I would quit immediately. I would quit my job. I'm not that good of a communicator. I'm not that great of a speaker. You guys aren't that great of listeners. Um, I'm boring some of you right now. I have no hope if God does not work through his word. I have no, my only hope is to do the best that I can to faithfully present and preach that word to you and then to pray and then to ask and trust the Lord to use that word. It is not me. I have no ability whatsoever. It is through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of his life, death, and resurrection in the place of sinners for the forgiveness of our sins. It is the spirit that works through that word to raise the dead and open eyes so that we may see and believe, love, and come to Jesus Christ. So I am preaching. I am speaking to you. I'm reading my notes. I'm responding to your looks. I'm, I'm trying to analyze what's going on. I'm talking to you. But at the same time, I am praying the whole time, Lord, help me. Please help me. I have no hope to connect with these people to communicate with these people, to keep these people attention, to help them spiritually. I can't do anything unless he works through his word. And so we pray. And your job is to pray for the preaching of the word and the teaching of the word here at the church. No one can come unless the Father draws. And he draws through the preaching of his word. But those who the Father draws will come. See, that's, that's my only hope. And he effectively draws and causes us to come by the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Word. See, that's God's solution. That's affecting grace. Right? Affecting, we just mean it works. It causes, so many people preach, preach grace as like, hey, God's throwing this thing out there. Come and get it if you like. That is no help to me if I'm dead. I need his grace to do something in me and for me. I need affecting, working grace. It creates that which was not there. And this is our only hope. God must do it. Grace must do it. So listen, this is just what it means for God to be sovereign. Lots of people give lip service to the sovereignty of God. But when you get down to it, it becomes clear that they don't actually believe that God is sovereign. And they don't actually, if they don't actually believe that God is sovereign, whether they know it or not, they have to end up then believing that man is sovereign. But we've seen that scripture, what it says about our condition in sin and our just total inability in that sin, there is no hope in us. But I want to encourage you this morning that there's great hope in God and in His affecting grace. And so let's move on. These remaining points will be much briefer, for they follow necessarily from the previous two. Listen, if God's grace affects what He intends, if it works, then this just logically follows. If our problem is that bad, if we are dead, then our hope, only hope, is affecting life-giving grace. And if that grace is affecting, then it must also necessarily be electing. Point number three. Look back again at verse 37. The vast majority of evangelicalism reads verse 37 as, All who come to me, the Father will give to me. And that's how they read it. But that's just not what it says. That's not what Jesus says. The giving precedes the coming. The giving is the grounds and the cause of the coming. The Father gives to the Son a people. Again, we know that that must be a determined, definitive number of people. 
For Jesus tells us that all that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. He tells us in verse 39 that he will lose nothing of all that the Father has given him. All that are given will be saved and will be raised up on the last day. Which must then mean that all are not given. Because we know that all are not saved. Jesus is very clear about that. But Jesus says that all that are given will be saved. And so it's, it's a simple biblical fact, though we may struggle with it, that the Father has given to His Son a specific people. We have all of us chosen to reject God. We have all elected sin and death. And God would be perfectly just to leave us all in that sin and leave us all to that death that we deserve. Again, we struggle with this because we minimize sin. But our God isn't just just. He is just and oh so merciful. And so he also graciously and freely chooses to save some, though none deserve it, though he didn't need to do it. Verse 37, the Father gives to the Son. Verse 44, no one can come unless the Father draws. Verse 65, no one can come unless granted by the Father. Verse 70, did not I choose you? This is all that we mean by election, by God's electing grace. Because we are dead in our trespasses and sins, this is the only way that it can be. And this is the only way that it can be grace. And if it's us choosing God, it's not grace. But if we are dead, and if it's God in his mysterious mercy choosing us, not because of anything in us, but solely based upon his good and merciful will, then it's all grace. And in my opinion, there's no way around this. It's either ultimately dependent upon us, or thus ultimately dependent, and thus ultimately dependent on our works, or it's ultimately dependent on God, and thus ultimately dependent on grace. You have to choose one of the two. There is no third middle option. For it to truly be grace, it must be an electing grace. Peter touched on Ephesians 1 uh, this morning. Ephesians 1 verse 4. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I have such a comforting truth there, church. Before you existed, before the world existed, God in his gracious sovereignty chose you. Verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. If you missed the glorious truth of adoption and Peter's exposition of it this morning, please go back and, and listen uh, to that. Uh, we were sons of the world, sons of sin, son of, sons of evil, sons of Satan. By God's grace, he takes us and he transfers us and he makes us his children and all the benefits and the blessings that come uh, from that, the glorious doctrine of adoption. Verse 11, Ephesians 1, we have, an obtain, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That all things includes salvation. It includes those who will be saved. And it happens according to his will, not ours. Romans 9, verse 11. If you don't like this whole idea, you should pull Romans 9 out of your Bible, probably, and don't read it. Verse 11, God chose Jacob, not Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. Verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
Listen, if it depends not on human will, which is exactly what the scripture says, but on God's will, then his grace must be an affecting, electing, choosing grace. My goal right now is not at all to stir up controversy. I don't care anything about the controversy anymore. I'm done. I don't understand. I, like, I always don't even understand the controversy. Um, I'm not going to answer all your questions that may arise from this doctrine. My goal is simply to show it to you. It's just there. It's in the text. It's what Jesus says. And that then must mean that regardless of what you think about it or what I think about it, it must be good. Because he's perfectly good. Because he does all things well. Because the judge of all the earth always does what is right. Jesus is not teaching this here in John chapter 6 to be controversial. He's teaching it because it's eternally comforting. He's teaching it because it's eternally true. And he will later pray in John 17 that the Father would sanctify us, set us apart, make us holy. How? Sanctify them in the truth. It is through the truth that God sanctifies us and sets us free. And that includes the truth of God's sovereign, saving grace. And church, listen, I'm passionate about this because it's my only hope. I have, by the grace of God, seen the wretched state of my soul left to itself. God graciously gave me 22-ish years of life in the church, sitting under my father's wonderful preaching, hearing the gospel, rejecting all of it, not knowing any of it, and loving my sin and living in great darkness. And God very clearly showed me the wretchedness of that sin. I've seen it. Even post-grace, He's very graciously shown me how much of that sin remains in the grumbling and in the anger and the discontent and and how little I love the things of the Lord and how little I'm actually uh, seeking first the kingdom of God and how prone I am to seek first my uh, kingdom, how much I tend to grumbling and not gladness. I've seen my heart by the grace of God. If there was any way for me to mess this thing up, I would have done it. And I know some of you pretty well If there was any way for you to have messed it up, you would have done it. If there was any way, if there was anything left up to me, I would be eternally doomed and damned. I love to preach the sovereign grace of God, not only because it's there and because it's, it's true, but because it's so gloriously good. And so I will not back off. From this, yeah, yeah, I went through the the cage stage thing. I can be obnoxious and arrogant about it. I can want to win intellectual, theological arguments. I I can do all of that stuff. But I'm fully convinced this is our only hope. So that's why I want to preach it. And I want you to know this and understand this better and better because your experience of the Christian life will be in large part determined by your experience of God's grace. And your experience of God's grace will only grow as you grow in your understanding of how comprehensive and complete that grace is. He begins it, and he will bring it to completion. And that's our fourth point. I'll just mention it. God's glorious, ensuring grace. Affecting, electing, ensuring. Look at verse 39 again. You're lucky my voice won't last two hours of sermon. 39. And this is the will of him who sent me. Here's our only hope, Christian, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He will lose nothing 
He will lose none of us. Look back at verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In church, that's, that's my only hope. And we, we tend to think of God's grace as a beginning grace, but it is so much more than that. It's a continuing grace. It's a sustaining grace. It's a constant grace. It's an unending grace. It's an ensuring grace. So a good author not only conceives a story, but completes that story. I am not a good author. I have a Microsoft Word folder on my computer with a number of stories and books that have been begun. None of them even remotely close to being finished. I am not an author. It may be one day. Rick has both started and finished a story. That's pretty neat. That's what authors do. Lila was sitting on the bed behind me while I was typing this, reading Rick's book from beginning to end. Right? That's so cool. Right? Authors begin the good work of a story, and then they bring it all the way to completion. And God is the perfect author. And his story is the most significant story. It is the story of his glory. And it is the story of his glory most manifestly revealed in the story of our salvation. And that glory is most manifestly revealed in the fact that salvation belongs to him entirely and not us in any way. He does it, not us. And listen, it can be no other way. He begins it and he will bring it to completion. He loves us, Romans 8, and nothing can separate us from that love. But I've probably done everything that I possibly can to separate myself from his love. I can't even do it. Nothing can separate us from his love. He forgives us, Romans 8, and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And how's that for ensuring grace? No condemnation when I deserve much condemnation. But I get none all because of grace. And that's what you need. That, that is God's promise to those who are his. And the promises of God are everything. Do you realize how important to your day-to-day life the promises of God are? Do you use those promises? And do you realize how necessary the absolute sovereignty of God is to those promises, which are your only hope? And this is why we come back to this again and again and again. There is no more important question than this. Is God actually in control? All other questions rest on that question. Everything depends upon God's sovereignty. You can talk about sovereignty like, yeah, everything depends upon it. God's promises are only as good as God's sovereignty. What good are his promises if he does not have the power and authority to carry them out? Jeremy, poor graduate student, I'm going to give you $10 million. I promise you, Jeremy, $10 million. That doesn't help Jeremy at all, right? I don't have $10 million. I have no ability to give Jeremy that money. What good are his promises if he does not have the power and authority to carry them out? His promises can only be guaranteed if he has absolute control and if he is absolutely sovereign. And if he is not absolutely sovereign in salvation, then he is not absolutely sovereign. And if he is not absolutely sovereign, then he cannot guarantee his word and you have no hope. If he is not absolutely sovereign, then he is quite simply not God. And so his grace must be affecting, electing, 
and assuring. And you must realize it as such to find assurance and hope and joy and rest and peace in this turbulent and troubled life with your turbulent and troubled soul. Here's your refuge. Here's your rest. All and only in the grace of God. And so what should our response be? Point number five, very, very short. One day I'll learn you're demonstrating God's grace to me right now and being patient with me. But if all that is true, it's quite simple. Here's how you respond. Believe. Oh, be humble and be glad. First, though, what does this mean if you're not a Christian? What if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian? Welcome. We're so glad that you're here. I'm so thankful that you would sit and listen to me uh, for this long. That, that means uh, a lot. Yeah, aren't we not supposed to talk about, you know, this with unbelievers? Right? Maybe we shouldn't mention the whole election absolutely by grace thing. By no means. Doesn't this discourage belief? By no means. This could be the very means through which God saves sinners. You see, this emphasis on God's sovereign grace could be the wake-up call to finally, con finally convince someone that you have no hope within yourself. That's where repentance and faith starts. It's seeing that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself or even help yourself. The affecting, electing, ensuring grace of God is your only hope. What good news that God is able to do what you can't. So believe, see your hopelessness, and see his kindness and his grace and come to him. See, Jesus has just laid out that it's all God's grace. He has just laid out very clearly God's absolute sovereign grace that the Father has given to him a people in his application. Verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. You see, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. We, I have no idea who are his. So what do we do? We preach. We invite. We evangelize. We preach the gospel indiscriminately to all and invite all to come to Christ, knowing that those who come, come because God's grace has drawn them. You see, listen, faith is the evidence of election. We're not supposed to like, figure out election or something. Hey, faith is the evidence of election. All who believe, believe because they are God's. We'll see this again in John chapter 10. Jesus is going to say to the religious leaders in verse 26 that they do not believe because they are not among his sheep. Catch the order of that. He doesn't say they aren't his sheep because they don't believe. He says they don't believe because they're not his sheep. And then he explains in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The shepherd's sheep will listen to his voice and follow him. They will believe. And that is the proof. That is the evidence that they are his, chosen by his sovereign grace. That's the only question you need to concern yourself with this morning. Do you believe? Do you see and savor the beauty and the glory of the gracious God and this compassionate Christ who is all of grace? If you do, praise God's glorious grace. You are his. And so, be glad. Remember we explained gladness in the Greek is the same word uh, as grace. Joy and grace are the same root word. Be glad. Rejoice. He did for you, what you could not have done for yourself. He chose for you what you could have never chosen for yourself. He gave you the opposite of what you deserved. What a wonderful Savior. And so be glad in Him. Rejoice in the Lord always because of His glorious grace. And then, hey, be humble. Oh, this is a hard one. 
You didn't do it. You didn't do anything. We should be the most humble people in the world because we recognize by God's grace that all that we have and all that we are is entirely his grace. And let this sovereign grace of God humble you and exalt Christ. And then patiently and graciously love others. You love them in part by pointing them to the truth. We don't be humbled by being like, oh, you know, this doesn't really matter. I don't want to talk about it. No, we, we, we be humbled by graciously and patiently and lovingly uh, talking about it. We, we encourage people towards the grace of God. We understand that it takes many time to see and understand and love the sovereign grace of God. And so that's our problem. This innervating unbelief according to Christ. And that's our solution. That's God's solution according to Christ. So there's the, the total depravity and the total grace. You see, the more convinced you are of your utter depravity and inability, the more wonderful and desirable Christ will appear to you. Maybe you are not yet fully, utterly compelled and constrained by the goodness of Christ because you are still somewhat committed and convinced that you aren't all that bad. But see your badness for what it is. And you will see Christ and his goodness for what it is. There's nothing more important for you to know than the grace of God. The affecting, electing, ensuring grace of God. And so, of course, doctrine is important. And there's no more important doctrine for the stability of your soul, the gladness of your heart, than the truth of how God has saved your sinful soul entirely by his grace. I have nothing to offer you but the glory and grace of Jesus. He is a suitable, gracious Savior who will save his people. So love him and believe in him. Let's close uh, with a word of prayer. Father, thank you. We thank you for grace. Father, it is grace that you have given us this word. It is grace that you reveal yourself to us, that you reveal your grace to us, and you reveal your grace to us by revealing your Son to us. And so, Father, we ask simply that you would show us Christ. We are often very aware of our sinfulness. If we're not, I pray that you would show us that. You are gracious and kind in revealing our sin to us. And I pray that you would use that as a means of directing us to Jesus and of, of showing us uh, the Christ who is the Savior of sinners. Father, may we be a people who delight in your sovereign grace. May you divest us of any uh, feeling or sense or belief that we have contributed anything to this. You've contributed lots of sin, but we thank you that you contribute all the grace that is needed. We thank you that you have given us your son and that you will not fail in that which you intend. Uh, You will always accomplish um, that which you will. So, Father, we pray that you would continue to save your people. We pray that you would sanctify us, those who you have already saved. Father, encourage us and comfort us by teaching us more and more about how gracious and good you are to us. Father, I so little understand your grace, and I even less live in light of that grace. So I pray that you would help me, Lord. I pray that you would help my brothers and sisters as well to love you and to love your grace and to love your son. Father, we ask now simply that your spirit would work in accordance with your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.